Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Lord God, thank you so much for this beautiful morning and this time together in your word. Lord, we thank you for it. We ask your blessing now on this time. Lord, I pray that you would take this take your words here, Lord, and that you would speak through me to the, to, into the hearts and the minds of all who have come this morning. Lord, we thank you so much, and we praise your name, Jesus. Amen. Maybe you know this. Maybe you don't. There is something in the Bible called the 400 years of silence. Do you know what that is, the 400 years of silence? See, that's the space between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, the Old Testament ends with a proclamation by the prophet Malachi condemning the people of God for their disobedience, infidelity, false worship, um, arrogance. They had become so sinful that the word of God had no impact on them at all. Now, in the absence of the word of God for those 400 years, they started adding their own interpretations to uh, what they had received from Moses so long ago. We're going to see some of that in the passage today. And it's easy for us to look at these people and to see how they just completely messed up. But in the absence of the word of God, you can do the same thing. With an absence of the word of God in your life, pretty soon you will begin to reinterpret the Bible in a way that will allow you to rationalize or even excuse away your sin. We say things like, well, that's not what the Bible really says, or that's not sin. God didn't really mean that in an, in an effort to try and excuse away what the Bible calls sin in our life. But when we take a good, long look at his word and our sin, and it's called out for what it is, we can, con- we can address it, we can confess it, and we can be cleansed of it. Amen? Amen. That's what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. Did you know that? That's what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He's calling us to recognize our sin and then calling us to address it. So let's look at where we left off, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. He says, You have heard that it was said in days of old that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. Now I want to tell you a couple of things right here. Notice how he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old. He doesn't say you, you have read, or he doesn't even say it is written right? He says, you have heard that it was said to those in days of old. Because at this time, they weren't reading the word of God for themselves. They would go to the synagogue and it would be read to them and then interpreted to them by the rabbi who was there. And so Jesus is saying, you have heard it said. Now he's going to do something so cool here. He's going to say in answer to all of these, you have heard it said to those long ago. He's going to say, but I say to you, Jesus is going to do a really neat thing that he is going to say, you've heard this said, 
But I say to you, in fact, what he's going to do is call upon his own authority to tell them what the initial and the, uh, the real intent of the word was, not how it had been reinterpreted, but what the essence of it was. And Jesus can do that. Why? Because the word came from his very hand as God. You understand? Who better to interpret the true essence of the word of the law than the giver of the law rather than the ones who had interpreted and reinterpreted in order to establish some self-serving way of living? So he says, you have heard it said that you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. Now, the Pharisees by this point had an external view of the law. They had a list of external actions that were considered sinful. If you do these things, that's sinful. But Jesus is going to say, it isn't just the sinful actions, but it is the sinful condition of your heart, which is what we were talking about last week, if you remember. Um, remember, the, you know, the salt of the earth is the person who, who calls out sin as sin, but the person who doesn't do that, who doesn't address sin, is the salt that's lost its saltiness. So Jesus is going to go through this entire chapter. The theme is going to be, it isn't just your sinful actions that need to be addressed, but rather the place for where those actions come, which is the sinful condition of your heart. Those who, uh, whoever will, um, whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. All right, right, right off the bat, he's kind of pointing out something that is very subtle if you, if you haven't thought about it. But in Exodus, where he gives them, thou shalt not murder as one of the Ten Commandments, the actual, the, the penalty for committing murder was what? Do you know what, the, uh, what it was spelled out in the book of Exodus and, and later on? Do you know what the penalty for committing murder was? Death. Do you see what they've done here? What Jesus is saying they've done there? You are in danger of death? No, judgment. That means that you would come before the Sanhedrin so they could hear the case and they could decide. And what have they done in that moment? They've reinterpreted to say, you know what? The word of God said that the penalty for murder was death. But you know what? We're going to have you come before us so that we can decide. In that one little spot, you know what they've said there? We are putting ourselves in the place of God. And that is what we do. We constantly put ourselves in the place where God is supposed to be only. But Jesus says, but I say... Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So Jesus is going to say, it's not just the action of murder. Essentially, in, in, in part, he's saying, murder begins in the heart. No one just says, wow, it's a great day. I really love my brother. I think I'll murder him today. Mostly. <laughs> Jesus is going to say, murder begins in the heart, but it's not just that he's talking about murder alone. He's talking about the condition of your heart. Have you ever been angry at your brother? And when he says angry at your brother, he's not just talking about your brother. He's literally talking about pretty much anybody that you bump into along the way or who cuts you off in traffic <laughs> on the way to church. 
angry without a cause. So you're going to see, and I, I can already hear this in my head. I can hear your thoughts in my head. <laughs> Almost every one of these that I go through, there's going to be somebody sitting here saying, yeah, but what about, yeah, but what about, yeah, but what about, and really what you're doing, I'm just telling you, because this is what I did too, is I'm trying to rationalize some situation in my life where I don't have to admit that that was sinful according to the word of God. Yeah, but can't, I, you know what, what about righteous anger? I love when we cling to righteous anger. It actually says in the word righteous indignation, right? But who here is righteous? Only through Christ are we righteous, right? So when I say, what about righteous anger? What I'm doing is I'm claiming that I have some level of righteousness that allows me to determine when I can be angry with you and when I can't be angry with you. Rather, what does Paul say? Put off anger. Just put off anger. That means that we should be able to, if Paul says put it off. But what is anger? And anger without a cause, because Jesus does kind of clarify it here. Well, I wrote this. Fixed anger. It's fixed anger focused on punishing the offender. Anger without a cause or anger that causes me to sin is anger that is fixed on punishing the offender. This is what Matthew Henry writes. This is a, as a Bible commentator and, and pastor from a, like 100,000 years ago. I mean, so he is one of those wigs. You know what I mean? <laughs> this is what he writes. Sinful anger exists to merely show or establish our authority to gratify brutish passion, to let people know of our resentments, or to excite ourselves to revenge. This is anger in vain. When I read through that list, do you have, when you have anger, the last time you have anger, did it fit into any of these categories that you wanted to establish or, or, or show your authority? That means like, hey, you disrespected me. I don't deserve that. I, I deserve this. To gratify brutish passion. To, this, is the one, this is the one right here. To let people know of our resentment. Hey, I need you to know that you wronged me. This is anger that is in vain. This is the type of anger that Jesus is talking about. But look at what he says here. He goes, you shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka. You know what Raka means? It almost doesn't have a meaning as a word. It's almost just a guttural sound. Raka. Like you would say that to somebody. But really what it's calling you is like if I was to say, you are a total numbskull. That's almost, a, almost an exact translation. Like, you're, you're just a numbskull. That's such a funny word, isn't it? Numbskull. Like, you have nothing going on. It's just solid. <laughs> then he says, or you fool. That, so here's the thing. Uh, Raka is like, I'm insulting your intelligence. Like, you have no intelligence. But you fool is me insulting now your character. Right? So what this is saying is, I'm angry at you. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to insult your intelligence. I'm also going to now insult your character. And what we see here is an escalation. At first, I'm angry. Then I'm like, now I'm insulting your intelligence. Now I'm insulting your character. There is an escalation in the anger, which is why he says in each one of them, when you say Raka, you'll be in, in danger of judgment. When you say, uh, excuse me, uh, if you're angry, it's judgment. If you are, say Raka, you're in danger of the council. But if you say, you fool, you're in danger of hellfire. Now, you know, there was a, a few levels of, of execution in the... Um, 
for the, for the Israelites. And each one was an escalation or like uh, the, worse your, the worse your crime, the, the worse your execution. I mean, I guess execution seems like, well, what's the difference if I get my head cut off or if I get stoned? Well, I guess there would be. One's quick. You know, if you get your head cut off, that was the first one. That was like the first layer. I'd rather, frankly, if I had to pick away, it would be licked to death by kittens as I go to sleep. That's how I'd like to die. But within the realm of, of, uh, of here, if I had to choose between getting my head cut off or being stoned or being burned to death in the desert, I'm going with head cut off, right? But what he's, what, what he's saying here is there is an escalation in the process. So it's like I get angry. Then my anger turns into, I'm going to, you, know, oh, you know, I'm angry. He's such an, a fool, such an idiot. Oh, he's a fool. Jesus is warning against that escalation. Then he says this. <clears throat> Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The, remember, the whole thing, Jesus, in every situation here is, a, is addressing a sinful condition of our heart or the condition of your heart. So he's saying, if you come to the altar to offer a sacrifice and it's brought to your mind, either by your own conscience or by the Holy Spirit, that there is someone that you have wronged and need to seek forgiveness, Go and do that first. He's saying, make that the priority over the ritual that you've come to perform for me. Since God sees our hearts, religious exercises or rituals done with wrath or malice or envy is displeasing to God. He's saying, if you come and there is something that you know that, and I, look, I think I would even go a step further and say, if you have unforgiveness in your heart towards a brother or sister or friend or someone, or you know that you've wronged someone and need their forgiveness, go to them and make that a priority to get that settled. And if, if you're sitting here this morning uh, and you're in that situation, you should go right now. No, no, stay, let's just finish. Let's just finish. But literally, he is saying, make this a priority. Do not walk around with unforgiveness, either holding it back or going out and seeking after it. Now, if you go down and you track down the person that you have wronged, that you need to seek forgiveness of, and they're like, whatever, that's not on you. That is not on you. If you go and say, look, I did this. I'm so sorry. Would you please forgive me? And they're like, well, we'll see. You're like, no, I'm done. I'm good. <laughs> I'm clean. No, you, you know, you do want to get some reconciliation there, but it's not up to you to make them forgive you. If you've gone to them and say, look, I've, I'm confessing to you, please forgive me. That's what he's saying. Go in and make uh, peace, uh, reconcile, ask for forgiveness and forgive. Oh my goodness. Then he says in verse 25, agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with them him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Surely I say that you will by no means get out till you have paid every last penny. He, 
you have to understand, Jesus is not talking about like necessarily literal situations, right? He was trying to help them understand by using kind of illustrations. So he's saying that agree with your adversary. The word agree means um, be of a a peaceful spirit. Be of a peaceful spirit. So not argumentative, not angry. We've already talked about those things. Agree with or be of a peaceful spirit with your adversary or um, that word is like accuser, the person that is accusing you. Okay, the idea is that we are to try and be of a peaceable spirit, even with those people who are accusing us, because this idea of like, well, if you're on your way to see the judge and the judgment is against you, and then you end up in prison and then you'll be in prison until you have to pay that, is really Jesus saying that if you are at odds with somebody and they're accusing you and you are not of a peaceable spirit and you're at odds with them, you have just gone into what we would call an emotional prison in that moment. Have you ever been fighting with somebody? You know what? Let's just take it to this level. Have you ever put a comment that you thought was really funny or really clever on Facebook and then somebody writes back to that comment something adversarial to you and you're like, oh man, I'm going to get them. Wait till they see this. And then you write back something even adversarial back to them. And then what happens? You sit there waiting for them to answer back thinking, just what are they going to say to that? Is that, you're you're not nodding. Is that just me? Am I the only one that... Have you ever been locked up in emotional prison where you're at odds with somebody? Maybe it's your spouse. And maybe you're like, well, I'm not going to say anything. They're going to have to say something first. I'm not going to. I'm just going to be like, silent treatment. I'm going to give them the silent treatment. Silent treatment with your spouse is like turning the lock in the door of your own prison. You are locked in there now. And if until you are of a peaceable spirit with the one that you're at odds with, you will stay in prison until the very last penny is paid. Do you get that? He's saying, deal with it in your heart. Be at peace with that person. Then in 27, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let me just tell you right now that this is not just directed to men. It says him and her right here, but this is talking to women as well. What is this saying is he said, you have heard it um, told to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. That's in the commandments, right? You shall not commit adultery. But Jesus says it's not just about the outward action, but if you in your heart see or look upon a woman or a handsome guy, ladies, and you look at them with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And that word look isn't just see, right? It means that you, well, I wrote it down so I would say it right. The look with eyes that turns into something physical. The idea is that you look with and then develop in your mind a thought or a plan that will lead to something, some physical interaction with that person. So the look is, I see someone, they're attractive. I think that I would like to interact with them on an intimate physical way. Even if it doesn't lead to that intimacy, Jesus is saying you've already committed that adultery in your heart. Now, listen, I know how the enemy uh, works in my life. He'll say, you're a guy. I'm going to just have things come into your life. Images, people, like, look, I go to the beach occasionally. 
there sometimes are women there who have, I, I'm not sure, I think it's a bathing suit, although. But here's the challenge. They'll walk across my field of vision, and, you know, I'm getting better and better at this, honestly, I will say, of doing this. <laughs> Trying to look like, avert my eyes. Um, and that's when, they, that's when the devil goes, there's one, there's one, there's one, there's one. <laughs> like, everywhere you look like, ah, <laughs> It's not the, the look in itself that he's talking about. It's the look that leads to lusting after. In your mind, you, you kind of start developing a plan. Even though you think, oh, no, I would never do it. Jesus said, but if you're thinking that way, if you're letting that thought take root and then begin to develop a plan, that's what he's talking about. Martin Luther says it like this. He's really a clever uh, quote. He says, I can't keep the birds from flying over my head, but I can stop them from making a nest in my hair. That's what this is. I can't always keep all the visions and the, and the thoughts from coming in, but I can take a hold of them as soon as I'm aware and then I can cast those off. I can see that and avert my eyes. I can choose to go in a different direction. I had a friend who used to work down in um, Times Square. He was an illustrator for Nickelodeon. And he said that his path from the train station's Grand Central down to where his office was on, in Times Square, he said there were just billboards everywhere. And, you know, it was just like all of a sudden there's like all sorts of Victoria's Secret billboards. How is that like okay? How is it okay to have 60-foot pictures of women in their underwear just out for everybody to see? But that's the world that we live in. That's the enemy saying, I'm just going to use these images to make it, you know, to just draw everybody. Look, 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 look. My friend said I had to change the way I walked. He had a very direct path to get to his office. He said I had to change it because there were just these images everywhere I looked. And it was him taking control of those images and saying, nope, I'm not going to look at this anymore. And that is what we're going to need to do. Look, he's going to go right into this. He's going to say, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for the whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Please understand, we had a conversation in youth group the other night, and one of the questions that came up that was asked to the kids is, is the Bible to believe, is, the, is it to be believed literally for everything? Has anyone ever said to you, oh, you're one of those people that believe that the Bible is literal? You know what I say when someone says that? What do you mean? What do you mean? Because if I say, Yes, I do, which I've been tempted to do in the past. They're like, well, then why don't you cut your hand off? I'm like, oh. On Tuesday night, I was talking to the youth group, and I said, is the Bible supposed to be believed or taken literally in every way? And, and we play this game like agree or disagree. And most of the group went over to disagree, because, and that was one of the issues they brought up. They said, well, the Bible says um, that if you, if you sin, if your hand causes you to sin, you're supposed to cut it off. And is Jesus literally saying, cut off your hand? People have done it. People have cut off their hand. Guess what happens if you cut off your right hand? I got a left one. I could sin with that one. Guess what happens if I gouge out my right eye? I have a left eye also. Can a blind man still lust? Of course he can. 
Jesus isn't being literal. He isn't saying that. In fact, he says, your right hand, your right eye. You know what that means? Your right hand, your right eye. The Bible assumes that everyone's right-handed. Sorry, if you're left-handed, sorry. I'm left-handed, but I don't take offense to Jesus in that. But he does assume that everybody's right-handed. And so he's saying, your right hand, your right eye, those are the most valuable things you've got. Your right hand, your right eye are value. He says, even if what you have of great value causes you to sin in your heart, get rid of it. When he says, cut it off, he says, take drastic action. If you are sitting down and watching TV and you can't help yourself but to watch shows that are disgusting, Get rid of it. Cut it off. Unplug it. Go and read a book. But better be a good book. I mean, it's got to be a good book too. The same applies. If all of your books are smutty, throw them out. Take drastic action to keep yourself from sinning in your heart. Don't, don't, please don't come in next week with like a hook and an eye patch. I'm gonna be really disappointed. <laughs> Really disappointed if someone comes in with like a, he's like, well, you did not get that at all. <laughs> Yikes. <clears throat> okay. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sex- sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, I know, statistically speaking, in this room, that covers a lot of people. And please don't be like, oh, here we go, and I'm going to divorce, and we're going to get out of here. And please don't leave today and say, oh my gosh, Pastor Aaron said, because I'm divorced, I'm a sinner. Guess what? You are a sinner. So am I. The Bible says that there are things that we do that are sinful. And rather than to sit here and say, well, it was because of this, or it was because of this, or I don't think the Bible really means this, that's us trying to excuse our sin. Now, I'm not any less sinful than you are if you're here and divorced or remarried. I'm not. I'm sinful too. But guess what? God says, this is a thing that is displeasing to me that requires you to come and confess it and be forgiven, not condemned. It, this isn't, by the way, Jesus' commentary on marriage or divorce. Remember what he's talking about. In all of these situations, he's talking about considering the sinful condition of your heart so that you can confess and be forgiven. That's the context. But in Matthew 19, which we'll get to at some point, I'm sure... The Pharisees come to Jesus and look, I'm going to read this. I'm going to read this to you. It says, the Pharisees came to him and they say, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, when a Pharisee comes to Jesus and asks them a question that seems like they really want to know, really what they're trying to do is trap him into saying something. And in this situation, this is what they were trying to, to make happen. See, at this time in the first century, there were two schools of thought with the rabbis, Rabbi Shemel. Uh, Shammai, who was very conservative and, and interpreted the word to say you can only divorce in cases of sexual immorality or adultery. But then you had Rabbi Hillel, who was much more liberal, and he interpreted the word um, uh, as just being unclean, which then he said, and unclean means that, that your wife does anything that displeases you. You know what if she doesn't, you know, you know iron your tunic just the way you like it, uh, 
If um, she snores in her sleep, if she puts too much salt on your eggs, that you could claim that you were assaulted. <laughs> so they knew by asking him this question, he would, if he answered this way, then he would alienate this group. But if he answered this way, he would alienate this group. And they're like, oh, we got him now because he's got to go one way or the other. But Jesus is very clever because, well, he's God. And so, you know what he does? He goes back to Genesis to answer the question. He says this, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus goes back to God's original plan for marriage. It says one man, one woman get married together, one flesh forever for their whole life. He says, that's what God said. So then they say, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce to put her away? And Jesus says, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. You see what they do? They come to Jesus and they say, well, then how come Moses commanded that we should do it? And Jesus says, he didn't command you to do it. He permitted you to do it. Why? Because of the sinful condition of your heart. But God said it was never so. You see what I'm saying here? That God is saying that my plan was never for divorce between two people. But divorce is a result of the sinful condition of our heart. Again, I hesitate to even say that because I know in a room like this, there are a handful of you or half who have been divorced. And I'm not judging you. I'm not condemning you. I'm simply helping you to see that that is a displeasing choice to God, but it is not unforgivable. There is no sin that is unforgivable except for the, except for the rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit. That is Jesus Christ died for your sins. That's the only unforgivable sin. But Jesus is trying to get us to see and address and confess the sinful conditions of our heart so that we might be restored to fellowship and perfect fellowship with God. Then he says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, again, he's going back to this, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oath to the Lord. But I say, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your own head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. Now, this obviously is a first century verse, <laughs> because you, we can make our hair uh, white or black, but I want to point out to you something right here. And that's not permanent, is it? It's not permanent. Many of you know. And thank, Jeanette is very thankful for that, as she'd be out of customers if we could permanently change our hair to black. You see, what, what he's saying here is, um, it, it said that it, in the Old Testament, it said if you're going to make an, you don't have to make an oath to God, but if you do, keep it. If you do, keep it. You know, maybe you're a person, I, I did actually hear the story of the one guy who was like, he was in, in a foxhole in Vietnam, and it was a firefight going like crazy. And he was like, Lord, if you'll get me out of this, 
I will go back to the church, I swear. When the war was over, he went back to church. And I said, good. I said, did you know that you don't actually have to make an oath to God? But the Bible says, if you do make an oath to God, keep it. Keep it. But Jesus is saying, don't swear an oath to one another. Don't sit here and say, um, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come and help you move on Saturday. I swear. I swear I'm going to be there. I swear. When we say this, I swear on a stack of holy Bibles. A stack of holy Bibles apparently is better than just one. In the, court, in the courts right now, maybe they should just get like a whole stack of them. Because apparently a stack of holy Bibles is way more effective because there's a, he says, don't swear on the Bible. Don't swear on your mother's life. Don't swear on your father's grave. Don't, I swear to God, don't do any of that. What he's saying is be a person of such integrity that when you say yes, people believe you on that yes. Or if you say no, people believe you on your no. Be a person of integrity so that people know that your yes is yes and your no is no. Do you know what I think about when I think about integrity? It's like, it's like you have to work at it, don't you? To get integrity, you kind of have to work at that. For someone to believe you that you are a person of your word, you have to say yes and then do it. And the next time you say yes and then do it. And the next time you say yes and, and do it. And at that, people then believe you. Like, oh, Shane, when Shane says yes, he, he means yes. You know, um, how, many, how, how many times does it take, though, to lose that integrity? One time. It's like ironing. It is. It's like ironing. Like, like if you have a, uh, a shirt like this one, I ironed a shirt today. Can you tell? My wife made me do it. <laughs> it was dark this morning. She goes, that shirt needs to be ironed. I was like, how can, how can you tell? She was right, I guess. When you're ironing, you're getting your shirt all nice and um, ironed, I guess. Is that the way it's, Yeah. Like flat. And you're going over and it looks all good. And it's like to get it unwrinkly, you have to go over it a bunch of times. You've got the steam on it. You're really working at it. And you get it all good. And then it folds over just a little and you go over that fold and bam, there's a wrinkle in it one time. One, one try and there's a wrinkle. And now I've got to go over it like five or six more times to get that wrinkle out. That's how you get and lose integrity. Integrity is my shirt is nice and ironed. I lose it by going over it once. Now I've got to work to get that iron out again. And God, he says, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Do you ever, have you ever talked to somebody who you knew they were lying or you knew you just couldn't trust them because there's a multitude of details in their story? It's just like so many details. And or when, when people would call up and, and, uh, and I, you know, this, I used to get this all the time when I was managing people and uh, they would call in to call in sick. And there would just be like, oh, yeah, I wasn't feeling good last night, and I had a cough, and then I had a fever, and I had diarrhea all night long. And I was just like, that's enough. <laughs> if you tell me you're sick and you're really sick, I'm going to believe you if you have that, if, if I believe you. But they knew I didn't believe them, and so they felt like they just had to give me so many details. It seems like in the multiple, multitude of the detail, therein lies the lie, but if they were always telling me, if always honest with me, all they would say is, I'm not feeling well. And I would say, okay, I believe you. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't swear to me. Don't go into a long list of details of why this or why that. Just let it be yes or no. <clears throat> all right, let's see. Where do we get to? Great. And you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
I think that is one of the most quoted Bible verses I've ever heard by anybody who's never read the Bible before. <laughs> an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so the idea is like, well, if, if you hit me, I'm hitting you. If you hit me with a baseball bat, I'm going to hit you back with a baseball bat. And the idea is this. First of all, when that was given, it wasn't given to individuals. It was given to the judge or the judges to help them to make sure that when they were doling out punishment, the punishment fit the crime. So, and to use this uh, Bible verse, it wasn't a tooth for an eye, and it wasn't an eye for a tooth. You understand? Like, it was supposed to make sure that whatever it was that they were doling out in punishment was equivalent to whatever the crime that was committed for. It wasn't too hard, and it wasn't too lenient. Okay, that it was appropriate. But now Jesus, and so it wasn't, it wasn't for individuals, it wasn't permission for them to exact revenge on their own, which we clearly, Jesus already talked about that. All right, and so he says to them, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other one to him also. Again, a pretty well-known, you know, like, turn the other cheek. We always say that, turn the other cheek. Well, I'm going to give you, the, like, the real um, skinny on, on this verse right here. See, first of all, he says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. It doesn't mean uh, resist like we think. What it means is, like... Um, withstand them or oppose them, kind of. Let me explain. Um, first of all, when, when he says, when someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek, kind of a thing, okay? What Jesus isn't saying is, if someone hits you, just stand there and take it. And then once he's done it, turn the other cheek to them and be like, right there, okay? What he's saying to them is, um, a, a slap on the right cheek. Remember, everyone's right-handed in the Bible. Remember that? A slap on the right cheek. If I'm going to slap you with my right hand on your right cheek, how am I hitting you? I'm not going like this. It's a backhand. So it wasn't an assault. It was an insult. I, what he's saying is when someone insults you, not physically accosts you, not uh, abuses you. He's saying, if someone insults you, don't insult them back in the same or greater measure. In fact, don't insult them at all. To turn the other cheek is to basically say, I could insult you just as good. And some of you are probably really good at that. Some of you could probably really cut somebody down with an insult. But he says, don't do that. Don't do that. In fact, I think also sometimes I think people think, all right, you can hit me once and I'm going to turn the other cheek and then you can hit me a second time. But after two times, watch out because the Bible says now I only have to wait two times. <laughs> and if that's your interpretation, you're reading that out of First Fleshalonians. It's not, it's not that. He's not saying two hits and then the third hit is me hitting you. It's not a hit at all. He's not talking about physical abuse. He's saying when someone stands up to you and someone um, insults you, we're not to come back with an insult at all. That I heard one teacher say this. Remember that it says that blessed are those who are meek. Remember we talked about what meek was? Strength and, strength and control or gentle strength. The idea is like I could insult you back 
probably worse than what you just did to me. <laughs> However, I'm going to hold back that. And in fact, what you're doing is, instead of trying to overpower that person with your intellectual insult and strength, you're actually taking back control in a different way altogether. You're taking back that control by saying, I know you just insulted me, but I'm not going to answer back with an insult. I'm going to turn the other cheek. In fact, what he's gonna, kind of what he's calling us to do is say, just take the insult and come back in a way that's loving. He's going to say that, love your enemies. What? <laughs> that's what he's going to say here. So it doesn't really have anything to do with physical uh, hitting or anything like that. Um, in fact, you know, if someone's about to punch you in the face, I would say block that or just like <laughs> step out of the way, all right, if you can. That's not what he's talking about there. Then he's, and, and he's going to kind of, it's kind of a theme right here. If anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. At, at this time in the Roman world, if a soldier came up to you and tapped you on the shoulder, you were compelled to carry his pack or his load or whatever he had. Um, but they could only make you do it for one mile. And Jesus says, go too. Go too. So at the end of the one mile, you'd pick up his pack and you go one mile. At the end of that one mile, when he's like, all right, give him back, he'd be like, no, no, come on, let's go. I got another mile to go. And oh, I don't know, by the way, why don't you just talk to Jesus on that? You got his pack on your back. Why not take the opportunity to share the gospel with him as well? But you see what he's talking about, the condition of our heart, rather than say, I'll take your stupid pack because I have to. <laughs> he says, pick it up and go two miles. Show him the difference between you and him in your heart. If someone wants your tunic, say, hey, you know what? Here's my coat as well. These are all internal heart conditions. He's not really saying if someone sues you, don't, don't um, try and resolve it by you know, giving them everything you own. He's saying it's a change in your heart's condition that says, you know what? Do you, you need my tunic. Why don't you take my coat as well? You want me to carry your pack for a mile? Absolutely. You know what? I'm going to carry you two miles because I'm going to show you that there's a change in the condition of my heart. Remember that the, the Pharisees were all about these external actions and trying to set these guidelines based on external actions. And Jesus was like, it's not just about your external actions, but rather your external actions are coming from the condition of your heart inside. You have heard it said, 43, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, first of all, do you know that it doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That was assumed. They added that interpretation on. It does say love your neighbor. It doesn't say hate your enemy. The idea was like, well, if I'm loving my neighbor, I'm going to hate my enemy. It doesn't say that. It was added. I looked it up because I heard somebody else say that. I was like, really? It doesn't say it. it. doesn't say hate your neighbor. He never teaches that. He never says that. But he says, you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You see, that's the absence of God's word over 400 years or however many years when they got to that part. They added an interpretation that gave them the uh, right to hate somebody else. Jesus comes right back and he says, no, no. I say, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. 
And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. He says this is a change in your heart to love those who don't love you, who pray for those who persecute you. Do you know why he says this? So that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He says, in doing this, you are imitating God. In imitating, in doing this, you are imitating God. Did you know that God loved his enemies? He loved his enemies so much that he sent his son to die for them. And you know what? I'm so glad because that was me. The Bible says that I was God's enemy before I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. The Bible says that you were God's enemy before Jesus, before Jesus died for you and you accepted his forgiveness. If you're here today and you've rejected the whole Jesus thing, God says, you're my enemy. You are God's enemy. He doesn't see you that way. He loves you. But he says, that's how you see him. But God said, love your enemies as I loved my enemies. Imitate me. Be an imitator of me. That's how you are a son, of your, a son or a daughter of your father in heaven. <clears throat> 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? You know, I just want to remind you that Matthew's the one writing this down. <laughs> you know, he's writing this down and, and Jesus says, even the tax collectors do that. And I think he must go. <laughs> he was a tax collector in case you didn't know. And I think that, you know, I think this was really important to Matthew. And I think this was because Matthew was, we see in him in recording this, because he, he could have left that part out when he was, if Jesus said, even the tax collector, he could have been like, <laughs> just pretend to write and not put anything on the paper. He was a humble man at this point. He knew his sinful condition, didn't he? Matthew knew and understood his sinful condition and was completely reliant on Jesus Christ for his righteousness. So he didn't have any problem writing down even the tax collector. This is like, even the worst of the worst do that. He says, if you only love those who love you back, zippity-doo, good for you, great job. You love people who love you. If you greet people who greet you back, great job. Even the worst sinner does that. Man, he's really, Jesus is really turning up the heat right here, right? This last verse, therefore you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. Okay, so you have to understand that's not instruction. Do you see that verse? It's not saying be perfect as God is perfect. It's not instruction. It's observation. The word perfect there means complete. He says, when you, uh, when you are able to do all these things, you'll be complete. And you're like, okay, all right, all right. I got to not murder anybody. Oh, check. And I need to not commit adultery. All right, check for me. Um, on these outward actions. I need to not do these outward actions. Okay, I pretty much got those covered. And then Jesus is like, excellent, all right. Now, if you've ever been angry at your brother, murder. If you ever looked at a woman lustfully, adultery. 
Don't, hey, don't make oaths. Don't swear. Have you ever said to anybody, I swear to God? I have. You see what Jesus is saying? He's eliminating methodically any opportunity for you to claim righteousness for yourself either in your actions or even in your heart. In fact, people will say, oh, Jesus, you know, he kind of watered down the law, made it easier to follow. In fact, he did the exact opposite. He didn't just say, don't just sin in your action. Don't sin in your thoughts. Don't sin in your heart. If you can not sin in your actions ever, and you cannot sin in your heart ever, then you're complete, you're perfect. But guess what? I'm sitting there going, well, I already blew it. I can't even do that. I didn't do that on the way here this morning. That's why he goes back to the very beginning and said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Poor in spirit, emptied of the understanding that I have anything righteous of my own to offer up to Christ that I could be searching after him and be filled with him. And then when I do that, when I'm filled with Christ, when I rely on him, when my whole life is given over to him, he says, that's when you're complete. Not in your actions, not in your thoughts but when you are completely relying on Jesus, understanding that we still sin, but knowing that God says, but when you come to me and ask for forgiveness, I forgive you and I cleanse you from all iniquity. Amen? Man. Let's pray. Father God, I do just thank you so much. Lord, for how how you've spoken to me this week through this last part of chapter 5, the very, even just the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for reminding me regularly of the sinful condition of my heart so that I never get to the place where I'm not calling on you for forgiveness, to be cleansed. Lord, I thank you so much that your word says that each and every time I call out and confess my sin, that you are faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me from all of my iniquity. Thank you. Lord, I thank you for your mercy. Lord, I pray for this group of people right here today that what they heard today would not leave them feeling condemned, but hopeful in the knowledge that there is forgiveness for their sin each and every time. Lord, I pray for anyone here who has not received you as their Lord and Savior, who is struggling with trying to keep the law, not understanding that the law was there to point them to Christ. Lord, I pray that you would soften up their hearts, that they might receive this word, that they might receive your son. Lord, I pray for anybody here who is struggling with anything that I said, Lord, that is pushing back, that is fighting and trying to, trying to tell themselves that their sin is not sin when simply all they need to do is confess it and be forgiven. Lord, Lord, let's just take a, a minute quietly on our own right now. And if there's anything that you want to go to God and confess, Lord, just take this time right now. Oh, thank you, Father. Thank you for your forgiveness of sin, Lord. Lord, I just thank you again for this amazing day, this morning, and for your word. Lord, and in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.